guys, and welcome to another episode of Girl Boss Radio from Panoply. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder of NastyGal.com, the author of the New York Times bestselling book Girl Boss, and the author of Nasty Galaxy, which you can pre-order now at nastygal.com slash book or anywhere books are sold. On this podcast, I interview a different woman who's carved out a path for herself. We trace her from her first job to how she got to where she is today to extract solid advice for you, our listeners, who are doing the same with your life. To stay in touch with all things Girl Boss, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Girl Boss. You can sign up for our newsletter, Girl Boss Diary, by going to girlboss.com. And you can follow me at Sophia Amoruso. That's S-O-P-H-I-A-A-M-O-R-U-S-O. Probably don't have to spell it. On Snapchat, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm all over the place. You guys, I hope Girl Boss Radio helps you achieve your goals, or at the very least inspires you uh, to take on your day. So please help us achieve our goals. If you like this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes and share your love on social media. We've been in the top 100 pretty regularly, which is a big deal. We're still a new podcast. And with your help, we can stay there. And now for our weekly Girl Boss Moments. Girl Boss Moments are a time in your week where you feel like you are in control of your life. It's nice to call these out and it's nice to tell your friends about it and use the hashtag Girl Boss Moment. We will find them and we read them on the podcast. It's a cool shout out to yourself. Um, Tara Oldfield at Tara Oldfield says at Girl Boss, paid off my student loan today. Hashtag Girl Boss Moment. That's amazing. I feel like people die without paying off their student loans. It's such a thing. Alyssa Mastromonico, who was a guest on this podcast, one of my favorite people, at Alyssa Mastro 44 says, my partner in transatlantic poker at Leah was just named new editorial director at Refining 29. Wow, so she left Marie Claire. I had no idea. That's so cool. Congratulations, Leah. Jamie Petit says, at The Pacing Life says, pleased to hear I passed phase one of my NAASFP marathon coach certification. Amazing. Congratulations. I wish I knew what that was. Paige Barbara at Pageifer says received the quote go ahead to start working on an influencer campaign I presented to my bosses. So cool. Budget. Lindsay Nolan, the underscore a happy goose says now saving $9 a day in savings since learning in 32 years, it will be a million towards retirement. Hashtag mind blown. So cool. Clean eating couple at CE couple, putting an extra 500 down on my student loan debt with my first paycheck to myself from my business. That's a big deal when you start paying yourself. Just having the business pay for itself is one thing. And then taking a salary, that's a whole nother thing. That's a big, big step. Congratulations. Hollywood glamour can seem unattainable, but Cassandra Gray puts the glitz within reach with Violet Gray. The luxury beauty company curates the top makeup brands in one space. From eyelash curlers to lip liners, you know you're getting the best of the best when you visit Violet Gray. Every product on their website and in their beautiful Melrose boutique is rigorously vetted by their prestigious Violet Code, a collection of the who's who in beauty from magazine editors, makeup artists, and designers who rank their favorite brands. Previously, Cassandra worked in marketing for the Plaza Hotel, Dom Perignon, and Kiki Day, and we're so happy to have her in the studio today. Cassandra, thanks for being here. Sophia, thanks for having me. It's been a while since I've seen you. I think the last time I saw you was we went to the LACMA thing. Was that it? I think so. Well, we're here today. I'm so happy we're here. Me too. Um, the first question I ask all of our guests is, what was your first job? 
and there's first career type job and then there's, but there's also first like random ass job that you had in, in maybe high school or college. For me, it was working at Subway. <laughs> the first time I made money was when I was, I think about nine years old and oh. my, I had a pretty unconventional childhood. My parents were hippies and, uh, migrated to San Francisco as hippies do. Uh-huh. And I was born at home with a midwife, the whole thing. And my mother and father were divorced when I was really young. And my mother, I was sort of an artist, Montessori school teacher, educator, and believed very much in sort of learning through life experience. So I was homeschooled wow. and we traveled a lot. So basically we would live somewhere for about a year and then my mother would visit somewhere else and then we'd move there. <laughs> and cool. there was a time that she was, uh, re she remarried my stepfather, who was a stained glass maker. And because she was an artist, she drew, she, she drew the designs and then he created the stained glass. That's very hippie. While they were doing that, I was sort of, you know, arts and crafts on the floor homeschooled, learning about what they do. And so I created dried flowers and put them in between two pieces of glass and then sealed them and sold them like at the art fair. Cool. What city was that in? That was in North Carolina. Wow. In a city called Asheville. I've heard of that. Which was at the time very artsy. Artsy. I feel like there's a lot of like punks and kind of like political people there. now. Yeah. I, I don't, don't know, know too much about the culture now, but sounds like it was, I don't it was know. sort of the alternative part of yeah. North Carolina. North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first like legitimate job. job? So I had a lot of jobs by the time I was 19. I think the most impactful first job that I had was in a children's clothing store called Small Fries in Noe Valley. Oh, cute. That I think is still there. I feel like I've heard of that. I used to work at um, a record store on 24th in Noe Valley. Oh, really? It was probably there. Maybe we were there at the same time. I don't know. Um, I was about 17 when I worked there. Cool. And the woman that owned it was like a former executive from The Gap. And she was a woman called Carol Yinney, and she sort of adopted me and sort of made me the manager and buyer, and I did the windows, so lots of creativity and also management experience. So I think that was sort of my first real job. How long were you there? I want to say like maybe two years. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so after that, from what I understand, you kind of went into marketing was that where you learned about marketing? And what are the things that you learned working for a small business like that? Do you feel like that was an important point for you? Yeah, I definitely learned about marketing. I think I've always been sort of born with an innate sense of marketing. And it was really interesting. It was a time when uh, Beanie Babies oh, yeah. came out mm -hmm. and we discovered them at this little store. We did, I mean, I'm sure lots of other places discovered them too, but we discovered them and, and they became like most of our business one year wow. and lines out the door. And so I think that was a really interesting case study. So certainly I'm sure that inspired me. I haven't thought about it until 
just now. So but. funny, Beanie Babies. Like they started and they were like a normal, cool thing. And then at a certain point, they became like this fringe thing for like weird people who don't leave their homes and they collected them. Uh-huh. You know, it was like at first it was <laughs> like, like quarters, kind of like a normal thing. And then uh, once it once the craze died down, it just seemed like weird eBay people or something. I was on yeah. eBay. So yeah. I just like remember. Yeah, I think what I learned from that story, and I think there's two things that I remember learning, which is one that I understood that the founder, Ty, or whatever he, he was called, went to the company that he was working for, which was some very large plush company, mm-hmm. and with this idea, and they said, no, we don't like this idea. So he left and started it himself, which I think made an impact on me. And then just this notion of sort of collectibles and creating scarcity and Mm -hmm. through that. Yeah. What do you think the best marketers possess or what do you think it takes to be a good marketer? They, you know, I think it's about transparency and it's about emotional connectivity. And I believe that is very much rooted in in authentic narrative Mm -hmm. and storytelling Mm -hmm. and why you do what you do. Which I think you guys do so well. For our listeners, just how would you describe what Violet Gray is and how you connect, you know, what you just described, I think is exactly what you do. I'd love to hear, you know, how you do that with like the Violet files and everything. Well, I think when we think about Violet Gray or when we talk about Violet Gray or try to describe Violet Gray in the elevator or whatever in the short form, we, you know, we're really a group of, of people and really editors and engineers and marketers and office managers. And we're, we're a team of 40 now. That's our core team. And then we work with about 120 curators and content collaborators from the industry, which is how we curate our the best of beauty across all categories. Mm-hmm. So yeah, when I when when we describe who we are and what we do and why we do what we do, we're a band of editors inside Hollywood that mm-hmm. are, you know, on a mission to really curate the best. And that's the best in, in beauty specifically. And beauty is such a really broad word, which makes it really fun from a storytelling perspective. And it's really kind of synonymous with self-esteem and so emotionally connecting with women and helping them to navigate this really saturated world that most women are really interested in is fun and a problem to solve. So we, you know, we're constantly just thinking about her and we're inspired by women most of us are women, like our head of tech is a woman, and we are just always thinking about what she wants and how to give it to her. Where did you get the idea for Violet Gray? I wrote the business plan for Violet Gray when I was in New York. So before I lived here, I lived in New York for about eight years. And the business plan, I mean, I'd written lots of business plans because I like you, grew up in San Francisco where, well, sort of, because I was had this whole time where I was mm-hmm. you know, a gypsy running around. But my father always lived in San Francisco, and so I was with him most holidays and summer. So if I think about where I grew up, that's where I think of as home. And then I spent my early 20s there, and I think that's where I got first got the sort of entrepreneurial bug or just knew that I was going to start a company, and that's what I was supposed to do here. And and I wanted to do it like in my early 30s. Like I really wanted to have fun and kind of learn a lot before I 
dedicated my life to building a company because I knew being around a lot of these young entrepreneurs in San Francisco, like in San Francisco, everyone has a business plan. Like, mm-hmm. like in LA, everyone has a script. Uh huh. It's the same it's kind true. of like, <laughs> yeah. water. So I think that's where it started in terms of me writing business plans and, you know, reserving URLs and cool, you know, trademarks and all of that. So I've always had lots and lots of ideas for businesses and written them. And by that, I mean, I'd write like, you know, five pages. Is there a market? And where, mm-hmm. what, you know, what is, what, what's the white space? And why is it exciting? And was it exciting to me? And blah, blah, blah. So I wrote the business plan for Violet Gray when I was in New York and kind of in response to, well, really Net-A-Porte as a business model was really inspiring to me. I, you know, I'm she's most, amazing. she's amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm most fascinated with really human behavior. And I, that's what I've studied my entire life and what I've tried to work in and learn from. And I'm particularly interested in it as it specifically relates to luxury and sort of the luxury dream worlds and even more specifically sort of the fashion houses. And, you know, I very much consider Apple a fashion house. And so Apple and Ralph Lauren and Chanel and these are all big, big inspirations to me. So I'm really interested in art that influences behavior and specifically purchase behavior. Mm -hmm. So in thinking about the net-a-porte model and then, you know, when I wrote the business plan, it was pre-social media and Facebook was there, but no Instagram, no Twitter. And it was just this notion of there really wasn't any one trusted source for beauty online. And then this notion of publishing was sort of flatlining. Mm -hmm. The brick-and-mortar stores – not a pleasant experience mm-hmm. in my experience. So it's just this very simple idea that women were ripping pages out of magazines and schlepping over to Barney's or Bergdorf's or whatever. I was in New York at the time and saying, I want this, like, cause Sarah Brown says it's the best or Jan Larkworthy, Larkworthy says it's the best. These are beauty editors from Vogue and W and, and this seems like a real problem to solve. First, these editors really aren't getting credit for the influence that they have on purchase decisions. And the editors in today's world, editors are authorities. And, mm-hmm. and, and there's a lot of editor, like a, like a makeup artist is an editor essentially in beauty because they're, they're using it every day and mm-hmm. filling up their kits with the best stuff. Anyway, so that was, that was a very simple idea. It's like, well, now that we have digital, we could sort of solve this problem. Like what if we could connect Put those two things together? The power of those editors with a place where people can actually tear out the purchase page their and recommendations in the same place. Yeah, which yeah. we can because it's called the Internet. It's amazing. It's really cool. It's very um, cool. I think everyone's been trying to solve the content and commerce conundrum. Yes. How do you guys think about that in terms of balancing sending your – your viewers, your 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 users, your readers, your customers to content versus product driven, like messaging. I guess. I mean, the content is always talking about product, but you know, I think some people feel like content can distract from shopping, and it sounds like you may have figured out a place where those things can live in harmony. Uh, certainly. Trying to figure it out. Yeah. So I think we've made some 
victories, tiny victories in the space. But yeah, it's, it's really challenging because I think it's very much about authenticity. And so I think we are uniquely positioned because we don't allow anyone to purchase anything on our site that we wouldn't write about. And we don't write about anything that's not available to be purchased unless it's outside of the beauty category. And so I think we we very much approach our e-commerce and really omni-channel retail business as a as as one of our channels that allows our readers to be able to purchase our recommendations. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 very editorial and we also edit the collection. So we each product goes through this pretty rigorous line of approval before it's deemed the best in class. It seems like so much work. Is it it's, so much work? It's so much work. Um, what has and we it, have to like <laughs> tell people about how much work it is because once like I'm in the office, so once you see that there's thousands and thousands and thousands of products in each category, and that then they have to dig through them and find just the top ten, and then finding the top five, and then why are those the top five is a process, but mm-hmm. it's a problem to solve because it hasn't been solved before. Mm-hmm. And so we're definitely interested in giving her what she wants. And she wants like to feel, she, she wants to feel good about the purchases that she's making. Well, it seems like you have, you know, your reader has access and your customer has access to these personalities who are, whether they're makeup artists or models or, or editors <clears throat> who are seeing the best of the best every day out in the world and then can come and sit on, I don't know if you call it a board, but with Violet Gray, influence what it is that's presented ultimately to to the reader. And so, you know, that's something that's harder to trust if they're pushing something on their social media that could be paid, they could be endorsed, but it seems like yeah, to I mean, have I like think, a real... You know, I think I wrote this business plan when I was in New York. I didn't know that I was going to do it. You know, I knew that I was going to start a company. And I knew that I was going to do it in my early 30s. But I I knew that my dream was to build a great company, which is, to me, a great group of people. And I knew that I wanted to work with talent that was, you know, far more talented than I was and far smarter than I was in all these areas. And I wanted to surround myself with sort of the best talent that I could find. So I knew that that was not going to be easy without a really strong vision that people got really excited about. I mean, you need money, you need vision, you need people. And so I think I didn't really get really excited about Violet Gray until I moved to Los Angeles and was sort of exposed to Hollywood through my husband, who's like this, you know, short Jewish, powerful guy (laughs) running the town. And I got this sort of front row plus one seat to Hollywood and realized very quickly that this is the most influential beauty culture in the world. Mm -hmm. And so launching a company born out of that culture with this understanding that this culture is relevant around the world mm-hmm. and that people are really interested in it. But also there's so much information amassed here because it is the sort of capital of image making and, mm-hmm. you know, these women 
that are on the red carpets and on the cover of magazines and in movies and on TV, like they're representing sometimes multi-billion dollar franchises. So as a result, they have a makeup artist and a hairdresser and a skincare professional and a shrink and a nail artist. And like <laughs> they have a whole crew. And I mean, obviously this isn't normal, but the, you know, the shape of your eyebrow really matters. Your skin really matters. The image that you're projecting could mean your next endorsement deal or your next movie or your, if you're smart about it all. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's very much a part of the business. So when I moved here and realized, oh, this is like such an incredible community and industry that's relevant around the world, but there's also this contingency of authority in the in this sort of new breed of celebrity these that are these makeup artists and hairdressers and dermatologists that are here working on the most famous faces in the world. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, to me it was like they were, oh, these are like the new chefs. Mm-hmm. You know, what happened to chefs in Hollywood. It's true. Except they're much, much more glamorous because they're like hanging out with movie stars all day. <laughs> yeah. Probably equal level of addiction issues though. Probably. Um, <laughs> I don't know. And they, they're artists. So they tend to be interesting and have personalities. Yeah. And I've always loved them, you know, meeting them on photo shoots and stuff. But I realized that, oh, these are the authorities in beauty. So mm-hmm. I need to figure out how to like round all of them up. So they can help me curate only the best because I need to like solve this problem. Absolutely. For women. What is your definition of beauty? I think about feelings like emotional connectivity. So I think like when I think about the most beautiful things I've ever seen, it's, it's like oftentimes it's, it's women. I think women are some of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's also like the ocean and flowers and art. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's about the emotional connectivity to what I'm literally seeing through my eyes. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's uh, like an implied pressure to be or look a certain way? Or do you feel like beauty and makeup has given people the opportunity to explore that for themselves? You know, so there's the you should do your makeup this way so that you can look like Kim Kardashian. But then there's also the flip side of makeup gives people the opportunity to explore who they are. Yeah. I mean, I think it also comes back to Hollywood and like the in Hollywood, like to me, when I was living in New York, was sort of a bad word and not that cool, and kind of <laughs> oversaturated. And I wasn't really interested in it. But when I moved here and really started to study it, I mean, Hollywood or cinema or moving pictures, whether it's French cinema or Italian cinema or Bollywood or whatever, are really responsible for most of the images that have made an impact on my life. And I've certainly been ruled by images and and iconography, right? So I think that art, most influential art in the world, which is this, you know, moving pictures. So I think when, when I think about Beauty, I think what I love about it and working in it so much is that it does have this utilitarian aspect where it's like I need my face wash or I need to wash my hair and I need to clean my nails (laughs) and all that. So it's like commodity commodities and that I need all the time. It's a recurring purchase. So that's very good for business. And then there's this whole fashion element of expressing yourself and and so creative and so fun. And, you know, if you're feeling tired, you can use makeup to not feel tired. If you're feeling like you want to be sexier, you can use makeup and hair and like all that stuff just helps you to get there. It's, it's theater. Right? And, and again, back to Hollywood, it's about getting into character and 
that can make life a lot more fun, right? Mm -hmm. I think being comfortable in your skin is something that is priceless and pretty hard to achieve because it's mm -hmm. so connected to self-esteem and mental stability and all of that. And I think, you know, as a woman, I think a fairly attractive woman, I rarely feel comfortable in my skin. So I do find that wow. makeup and hair and fashion and exercise and sleep and meditation all help me to feel better in my skin. Yeah. Which is just makes me feel more healthy. I Absolutely. Think. You started your company three years ago now. Uh -huh. If you were telling yourself three years ago something that would later surprise you about what it takes to, you know, run a team and have a team of 40 and have a retail storefront and do all the things that you're doing, what would your advice to yourself be? I knew that starting a company is was really hard because I'd been around enough of them as a consultant most of my life. So I'd been around small companies and big companies. So I knew it was, was not for sissies. Being an entrepreneur is so much about luck, timing, and tenacity. Like you're just going to get mm -hmm. through whatever comes your way. Um, so I really did have that mentality going in. So I knew it was going to be really hard. But even with that educated approach, it's like I can't even describe how hard it is. Mm -hmm. So this is what's like, like, I hire entrepreneurs. I love entrepreneurs. I love people that are like, I want to have your job. Like, I love that whole founding mentality. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really interesting time because I think most young people that I meet, like, they really want to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And then I think if I bring them into the world of being sort of at the top or the boss or the CEO or whatever, I mean, it's the loneliest, worst job <laughs> in the world. Yeah. It's I, really hard. I really kind of envy the freelancing culture, you know, in the some freelancing ways. culture or, you know, someone else is going to worry about how to pay your bills or uh -huh. how to raise, deal with a, raise an money. HR problem or yeah, totally. raise money or, you know, every single hurdle is ultimately yours to get through. Do you believe in balance? Yeah, I know. I like it. It's a nice idea. I mean, my work, has, it's always been really... I love that it's so foreign to you that you're like, yeah, no. Well, I, th <laughs> I think, you know, my work I've, has always been, I have to be really passionate about it to do well and to enjoy what I'm doing. And I've never wanted to waste time. Like I've had a lot of experience with death in my life, which is probably one of the reasons why I feel that way, but I do not like to waste time. So I really value my time very, very much. And so when I think about balance or what people mean by that, I mean, for me, life is about love and work and create for me work is needs. I need, I need to make stuff. So I need to be creative and I need to learn and I need to like constantly be challenged. And then I feel alive and I feel honest. And that's what I want. Like what I want for myself is just to be living an honest life, which is hard, obviously. So hard to do. Yeah. And so if by balance you mean that, then yes. I mean, that's cool. So to have that and then to have to be an entrepreneur, which to me 
is what I need to feel fulfilled. Like I need to build. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not a kind of person that can sort of move money around. Like I actually need to build and then I need to make stuff. Mm-hmm. Art. Yeah. I think, um, we had a guest recently who said that she didn't believe in balance necessarily, but she believed in happy, being happy. And it sounds like you have a lot of things that make you happy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, happy is a, is a, you're like, I don't know about that word. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, there's all these like philosophers like Rumi or whatever, like says the divine discontent of an artist. And, you know, I find that really to be true. Like I always want to do better mm-hmm. and I always want to build, build, build. And I, I have that drive and it's, it's just motivated by wanting to, do great things. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that, and it's not, you're not, it's kind of a miserable existence in terms of happiness. You're, you're never really happy because you're, you're always yeah. discontent. But as it mm-hmm. relates to my family and my love life, I feel really happy. Cool. If someone was trying to start their own business, what would your advice for them be? Well, they should think about committing the next 10 years of their life to building something great because that's what it takes. And mm-hmm. you, it's very difficult to have balance during that 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And know what you're getting into. And you can't be afraid to fail. I mean, f- failure is, you can learn just as much from failure as you can from success, if not more, probably more. Mm-hmm. I agree. Okay. So I have. One question that I ask all of our guests on this podcast, and there's something called a girl boss moment, which we've kind of, I don't know if it's like a hallmark moment, but uh, our listeners tweet in and Instagram in their hashtag girl boss moment. And a girl boss moment is just that time in your week where you felt like you were in charge of your life, where you owned your life. And that can be, I gave myself a bubble bath for 20 minutes and that just like made my week. And it can be, I got a promotion or I got a new investor that I've been working on forever. Cassandra, what would your girl boss moment of the last week be? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that lately I've been really focused on company culture, and we've had ups and downs in our company culture. And when it's when it's up, it's been really, really good. So, sort of maintaining that has always been a challenge, and I think will continue throughout our existence. And this week, I was really focused on sort of. I always call them chess moves. Like, what are nine chess moves that we can make to make the culture better and to make the culture the kind of company that we all want to work for? Because we're still building the mm-hmm. company into the kind of company we all want to work for. And, and so I started to sort of chart this out in the morning on my to-do list. And I realized like, oh, to improve on our culture, I have to engage the whole team to do it. I think this is a girl boss moment, but I'm not sure. It is if you say it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so I came to the realization that I needed help and I wanted to engage the team to sort of help me with these optimizations and sort of quick wins that I thought we could implement. And I sent out an email that described sort of what I thought we could implement now and then what I thought we might be able to implement later that we could be working towards, like the things that people always ask for, like summer Fridays and mm-hmm. 
<laughs> free <Everybody>. lunch. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So I sent out an email to everybody that this is like a priority for me and could, you know, who wants to help me. And pretty much everyone on the team wanted to help me That's and responded. Amazing. And so now we have this kind of culture club. That's a really good one. That's cool. And asking for help, just regardless of what it is that you're talking about, is a really big one. A really big so, one. I'm so bad at it. Me too. I think that's probably something I've learned the hard way. Uh-huh. And it's not because I'm a control freak. I'm actually not really a control freak. I'm very happy to let other people take on responsibilities. But I think it's hard for me to put myself in their shoe or or let them do it in the way they would do it versus the way I would think about it. Mm-hmm. That's control. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think? <laughs> yes, but I think that's what I'm trying to say is that I, it's, I've come to the conclusion that I am much more productive when I sit on my hands mm-hmm. and don't try to. And your team's happier. Don't try to yeah. ask or dictate the way they execute based on the way I, how I would execute. Mm-hmm. And I've learned that there are many different ways to totally slice flip an egg. Or, yeah, yeah, totally. Cool. Cassandra, thank you so much for coming on Girl Boss Radio today. Um, for thank our listeners, so. tell them where they can find you and Violet Gray. Well, you can find me on Instagram at Cassandra Gray or at Violet Gray. And then you can shop for the best in beauty on VioletGray.com. Cool. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. That was another episode of Girl Boss Radio. We'll be back next week with Melissa Biggs Bradley, the founder and CEO of Indigari. So please tune in. Our producers, Sharon Morris. Thanks also to Emily Odelia Rubin, Kristen Meinzer, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Thanks also to the band Phases for our theme song and Same Animal for our interstitial jam. I'm Sophia Amoruso. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>